During the pandemic, uh-huh. I discovered the Alexander Technique, and this has been the biggest thing in my life. Alexander Technique? What is What's that? What's that? <laughs> <laughs> but then, because I was talking about being a floating brain, it alerted me to the fact that emotions and feelings in general and senses of things and intuitions are physically felt. Right. Physically felt in the body. That I, it's, it's not just I have a brain and I have you know a heart or emotions or whatever. I have a body that can do processing or something or that represents processing or like there is something such that if you are in touch with your body in a particular way, uh, you, it's like getting another brain. It's like... Yep, here you go, Luli. Another brain for free. This is a robust theoretical explanation for why we do the cha-cha. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I was holding that one. Okay. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Any Thoughts On. I'm T. Barnett, joined today by Luli Tannett. Hi, Luli. Hey. It's nice to have you. Nice, nice to, to be to here. Have. Yeah. Any thoughts? Yeah, this is my niece. Very adorable. T-Bird Sorry, I was like... <laughs> you are now listening to... Any T-Bird. With T-Bird. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, I had this for you, too. I thought this might be interesting. So, in case you were talking and I was zoning out, I would go... Go on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with with go one on. of those... Yeah. Those drinking birds that just crushes it every so often. (laughs) And I had one more. I had one more. I think it was like, huh, I would love to learn more about that. Please continue. (laughs) Is this what you use for your coaching? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's a technical issue. I'm going to have to have my screen off. And then every once in a while, I just, huh, I would love to learn more about that. Please continue. (laughs) Go on. Go on. Okay, so uh, I don't know. I'm just putting this music back on. So thanks for joining me today. Uh, Luli, just who are you? Tell us Tell us about yourself. Well, I'm Luli Tannett. I was home educated. I didn't go to school or university. I don't know if, you, if I've ever told you that, but uh, that's a fact. Hmm. Um, and I'm most interested in philosophy and personal development. Uh, and I'm currently in teacher training for the Alexander Technique. And this this music is so funky that I, I keep getting distracted by it. <laughs> I just want to dance. So. <laughs> no, this is great. This is great. Yeah. Um, uh, we met at a, at a rationalist thing, so that's we how did. we know each other. We did. And we'll cover that, you know, in the conversation when we, when we kind of go back. We're going to put this in the beginning. But uh, we did meet there. I also really want to... I see, I see you're like shoulders <laughs> moving. Yeah. I also want to talk about Alexander Technique for sure um, and dive into that. So basically, we're going to take the narrative arc of your life and sort of... Or your, well, I think it was your whole life, really. We started at your first words is where we began, really, and then up through you know the present day. So we're going to we're going to explore all of that. I'm going to kill this music, and we will do it. Okay. Before I go into that, because you mentioned what my manner seemed. I think you said karma or something, and I'm just very curious what differences you've noticed since the last time I saw you. Right. Well, first of all. I would contrast it with like the last time I had a lot of Luli exposure and that was like around pandemic coaching time or pre-pandemic. pre-pandemic. I think we started in 2019. Yeah. 
So that's what I'm contrasting it. I talked to you briefly at a conference like London last year or two years ago. I don't think it was enough to like get a read or something. But before it was this like high strung cerebral energy, sort of like crawling all over the conversation and like the meta aspects of it and like really jumping from thing to thing and sort of trying to be entertaining as well. You were attempting to entertain in a way that it seems like it just comes more naturally to you now. Fascinating. It's like, I feel like you insert clever things now with seamless effort in a way that was like less true when we first were working was together. It, would you say it was performative or, or there was a sort of uh, well, people pleasing or? So my issue with the word performative is that it sounds pejorative immediately, right? We're all performative in a lot of ways. Yeah. I would say it was maybe more, more so than I feel you are now. When I talk to you now, still waters run deep is how it feels more. Like I definitely thought there was depth, but there was a lot brought to the surface and like trying to express in different ways. And now it's like sort a kind of, of like anxious energy. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. More of a higher frequency or something. Huh. Yeah, that's why I say like high strung. That's not quite right either. I think you might know what I'm, I'm getting to. Yeah, that uh, I think that is maybe not 100% Alexander technique, but a very large proportion of it was that. You think so? Yeah. Did you notice that in yourself? Like some of the things I'm saying, does that oh, yeah, yeah, register? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, was, that was sort of one of the, maybe one of the main problems that I had. Or, okay, the way that I thought of my problems was that I felt inhibited socially, or I felt like uh, inclined to go into a performative mode, mm. or inclined to overthink my interactions with people or whatever, or like, you know, I did this Twitch thing. I don't know if I was talking mm -hmm. to you at that time, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I just felt completely terrible after it, like every stream, even if it went well. And I noticed right now I'm going into podcasting mode. That's weird. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't do this on my own podcast. <laughs> Wait, what's podcasting mode? It's like, it's like when I'm, when I'm talking, like when I'm aware of the audience instead of just talking to you. Oh, right. Is that how you want to be right now? No. Oh, okay. That's why I'm pointing it out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. This, this, this happens fairly frequently. Anyway. Yeah. What was I talking about? Right. So I wanted to do this YouTube channel. Did I tell you about that one? Yeah. I think I was trying towards the end of our time together, you were trying to kickstart that. Yeah. And every time I hit record, I would I would set up my camera and I'd press record and then I would be in a really unnatural way and it, I would feel awful and I'd have to repeat the same lines over and over again. And what would be happening is that internally I would be like noticing what all of my mannerisms are, like wondering how this is going to turn out, uh, being self-critical while I'm in the middle of speaking, which of course takes up half of my cognition to yeah. do that instead of just doing the speaking thing. And so the Alexander technique, almost immediately when I just read Michael Ashcroft's pinned tweets on it, allowed me to turn that part off and uh, just hit record and then just see what happens. Oh, that's encouraging. Yeah. So from pinned tweets. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I might be unusual in this regard that I did his exercises and they just worked in very, very well for me. So maybe in terms of that application of it, but I would say sometimes when I read a short blurb about a potential technique or procedure, 
I can like simulate it and be like, oh, that would be useful. It's sort of like you can intuitively get a sense that that thing would be would be good. This is a little bit different than what you're saying. Mm. Did you read the tweet and then take some time and like let them digest and actually do some of the procedures that he recommended? Yeah, so it was it was a series of I don't know uh, like six threads, uh, and so it'd be some theory, and I'd be like, oh yeah, that makes sense, and then it would say, okay, now try this thing, and then I would try that thing. Like uh, there was a non-doing floor exercise where you just lie down and you notice anything that you are doing, like any muscle hold, muscle tension, or any holding, or anything that you are doing, and you just notice that. Mm-hmm. And I found that when I did that, I was surprised at how much different stuff I was doing, how much tension I was holding. And then I kind of just noticed it like fall away and then more fell away. And I was like, oh, I, I can do even less than this. I can do even less than this. And then I found myself non-doing standing up in this very effortless way. And it, it felt like I it felt like I was watching myself stand up instead of I was doing, okay, I'm gonna stand up now. Right. Right. Interesting. And then I was like, what, what is this? Why is everything effortless in this moment? Mm. And so it was just the recognition of that and maybe like a soft directional target of like, don't try to do this. Yeah. Roughly. Yeah. I mean, any kind of trying is just another doing. So you can just notice that recursively. And when people get hung up on the non-doing things, they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Were you able to grok that immediately? If Michael or, or some practitioner was like, no, it's supposed to not be trying, but like it happens. Yeah, I think, again, I think I was unusual in that I, I saw in, in doing the exercise, I saw what the thing was uh, basically immediately. And everyone else I've tried to teach, non-doing in particular, that is the tricky thing because everyone has so many different habits around okay, I will try to do non-doing, which is then no longer non-doing. So I haven't tried it, but I feel like I have a version of that thing. And then I feel like when I read the pinned tweets of his or something, or when you talk about it, I, I instantly get it, or I feel like I do. So I wonder if you feel like there's a physiological referent or like a nervous system predisposition you have or something like that. Like, I'm wondering why you think you were able to pick it up so quickly as opposed to most other people? One of my guesses is that it is related to non-coercion, which has been my thing since I could talk. Okay. So in other words, there's a kind of not fighting yourself thing or not making yourself do something or not forcing yourself to do something. And that experience is related to overlapping with non-doing, I think. As in, I think the ultimate version of non-doing is sort of complete non-doing is the same as complete non-coercion, which is the same as complete self-alignment or, you know, there's a ton right, of right, different right. words that kind of all point towards the same thing. So you went a different direction at the end of that sentence or, or I was thinking you would go. So you were saying, since I could speak and I thought you were going to say you got into non-coercion in the last handful of years. And then Alexander Technique like folded really well into that. But you're saying that non-coercion concept is something that you have been aware of for 
Very long I mean, time. so my first words. <laughs> no, don't make me. <laughs> so, no, um, better. So we, apparently we were in the uh, the supermarket and there was um, a woman ahead of us in the line and she was yelling at her very young child who was crying. And apparently my first words were, that's coercive. No. Yes. And Get I can, out of I, here. Can, I completely believe this because <sighs> because this is what my parents were developing. They were developing this taking children seriously movement. Right. They were talking about coercion all the time. Oh. And and I took a while to learn to speak. And then when I was speaking, I was speaking in full sentences. And so I think I just waited for a while. Okay. <laughs> so, all right. so when I say since I could speak, I, I, <laughs> I do mean that. This is such a good access point into that whole pedagogy. So can you talk a bit about that? So we're like backwards laying the foundation for all of this. Yeah. Uh, so I was, I don't know how much you know about taking children seriously, but I was brought up under this education philosophy that was basically, what if you didn't have to force kids to do stuff they don't want to do or prevent them from doing things they do want to do? What if you can, it, it, it's sort of how do we have a rational approach to conflicts between parents and children. And so the rational approach is not going to be might makes right or it, the parent is right because the parent knows more because that's that's just an authoritarian approach to conflict. And so the the question is how do we get the merits of all of the ideas involved uh, to come to the surface and, and how do we have that that sort of thing? So um, and also it, it's a moral thing of like it's actually not good to force people to do stuff. Sure. And also it's a would this be an ontological claim uh, that that children are people like children have yeah. the same capaci capacities as adults even if they don't have the like the the knowledge. And so just like it isn't. Uh, good to suppress any minority group. It's also not good to suppress children. Sure. Okay. So that's coercive. Comes out of your <laughs> yeah. first words in a grocery store. And so you've been thinking about this for a while, and it sounds like, or inculcated and brought brought up in this, right? And then towards, I guess, like early adulthood or something, still getting tripped up on some forms of self coercion. Is that yeah? Okay. And that's something that TCS. Does that talk very much about that in terms of like helping the child with their own self-coercion? Or is that like a missing piece and it's more about it did, the dyadic? It did have that, but I don't think that it had very sophisticated, uh, you know, like coaching and therapy knowledge. Okay. Like it was, it was just, this is a thing in principle, but how do we actually implement that? And, mm. and that I think has been more developed. Yeah, it, it strikes me that that could be like a huge piece of it. I'm not sure if there's like still TCS following and community and stuff. Oh, there is. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. A huge piece of it could be like, yeah, coercion takes a lot of forms, including the norms you set in the household or like invisible expectations that are kind of like, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it, it did have a lot of that, but I think the more entrenched types of coercion take particular structures around basically like parenting and um, what gets 
instilled at you from a very young age. So I think that TCS really, in order to be kind of more complete, would need attachment theory, Mm -hmm. would need things or or things like attachment theory, maybe the the successor to attachment theory or something like that. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't know, oh, if you do this particular thing to your two-year-old, then that two-year-old will have this particular attachment issue for the rest of their life unless they do hundreds of hours of therapy. Right, right. And just to flip into podcast mode, attachment theory, I want to see if this maps onto your understanding. Essentially, early caregiver dynamics maps onto your cognition, mostly unconsciously, and affects how you relate to basically everyone and even the world, like how you make sense of the world. It's like a very foundational and fundamental concept. Is that roughly? Yeah, yeah. How safe the world feels, whether you feel like you can basically do things on your own right. or whether you need people or whether you can't stand to be around people and so Yeah, on. yeah. And how you react in situations where it's not at the comfort setting that you're used to or something like that, right? Okay, so it would be more complete, you're saying, with that sort of addition or those kinds of additions to to it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so it did not have that in your upbringing, presumably. So you get to a point when you're kind of this like young adult trying to make your way in the world. You're trying to start a Twitch channel, a YouTube channel. It's all feeling bad. Right. And then we met and we did coaching. Presumably I was like one of the many things you tried to do or something like that. So can you tell me a bit about when you realized maybe you might need something like trying to figure out non-coercion within yourself or something? Like what way to introduce that into your life or to help you do that or something? Yeah, I I mean, I've always been interested in the, the sort of the meta of ideas and thinking and how well you're doing things. And so there's a kind of introspective layer there. Mm-hmm. But I would say that I didn't get into personal development until I'm going to say 2016 when I did the Landmark Forum. Do you know much about Landmark? I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's actually really good and really underrated. Mm-hmm. I think it's the the best personal development uh, program or set of programs for normal people or for most people. I was going to say, it's like I had heard it's one of the best mass yes, personal mass, development. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I did that and and I had this this profound realization that this thing that I completely took for granted was uh, blah, blah. And I, I don't want to go into the details, but it was kind of, it shook me in like all of my relationships was all tinged with a particular thing that I discovered uh, in the Landmark Forum. And I was like, whoa, if, if that was false, if I was missing that, uh, then there's probably a lot, <laughs> a mm-hmm, lot there. Mm-hmm. Then I did, then I did CIFAR, the CIFAR workshop. What's CIFAR stand for? The the Center for Applied Rationality, uh-huh. which we, I also met you at a at a Center for Applied Rationality reunion. Which is funny because I never went to a workshop ever. Really? Yeah. No, re- I was a plus one. Oh no way! <laughs> yeah. Who did you go with? Uh, Christy. Okay. Christy, my current wife, listeners. Yeah. Current <laughs> wife. She is my wife. <laughs> You swap them around She's every the so often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that was before we were married. Yeah, I was just a plus one, but like I'd been in the same circles and like yeah, been into a lot of similar things through through Leverage, which is a an organization that was similar to CFAR in some you, ways. You were Leverage first. Ah, so you were EA, then Leverage, then 
Yeah, through the effective altruism community, I bumped into to Leverage, which is this psychology research institute that is still functioning, actually, but has a different mandate, basically. Uh, and they were doing like, they had an experimental psychology section of what they were doing. And I went to like one of their parties post EAG in the Bay, uh, post conference. You, you and... don't do any workshops. You just go to all of the parties and the reunions. It sounds yeah, exactly. like. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's like the best. That's the best part. Actually, yeah, when it comes to these conferences too, I, I mostly just talk to people and like go out with them and don't attend talks or openings or anything like that. But anyways, I was part of a very similar type of thing and found that CFAR people, people that like had taken the workshops or whatever, were interested in the same kind of introspective areas, personal development types of things, but going about it a certain way and the, the sort of like the ways we are talking about essentially now. And that's where we met in the reunion. Okay. So I'll like let you take it again from there. <laughs> we met at that reunion yes. for the first time. And I, and I went to the, to the CIFAR workshop because there was a workshop on the double crux class that someone who happened to be in Oxford just put on. And that was awesome. There's like listeners, if you have not read the double crux post, I recommend it. It's good. Do you have a, a headline on what it is? It is how to get to the heart of the issue of uh, debate and not go off into either like uh, tribalist or, you know, debating or fighting um, and actually getting to what do each of you care about and then potentially change each other's mind. Right. Um, and, and you do this by finding a, a crux, which is the, the key aspect of the debate or the issue. And if you both agree on the key aspect, then then you've made progress in the debate. Okay. So that was interesting to you at that yeah, point. Yeah. I was like, this is great. This is what a great, what a great discussion technology. I feel like you you canvas a lot of traditions or something, or you you canvas a lot of ideas, paradigms, traditions, philosophies. And so it's interesting to me. That's my impression. Just let me know if that's not true. And it's interesting to me that uh, internal double, double crux would be novel to you even at that time. It's like, were you finding the norms of civic discourse that you were seeking out there just didn't exist or weren't articulated very well or something? I feel like I naturally did some of the double crux stuff, but laying it out with steps and with very particular things just made it kind of crisper and clearer and also communi communicable to other people. Yeah, and especially if you have the other party intending to honor the procedural norms or something of internal double crux, that makes the whole thing way easier. Well, uh, theoretically, it makes the whole thing way easier. Yeah, I, I think I, I even still have a, an argument workshop that I did when I was, I don't know, 20 or something. And it's on YouTube and it has some things in common with, with the double crux. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you got into it through internal double crux? Yeah. But the key thing in CIFAR, so I was like, oh, okay, CIFAR is basically, like it says that it's this rationality thinking skills workshop, but actually it's a productivity workshop, but it's a pretty nice productivity workshop. You know, TAPS, uh, trigger action plans are good and whatever the other, what was it? Oh, IDC, that was great. In internal double crux. Isn't that the same? Isn't that what we were talking about? Internal double crux is basically parts work for rationalist fan fiction writers. Oh, okay. Because it's basically you just take two of your parts and then you have them dialogue between each other. Oh, okay. Oh, which, interesting. Which works if you are also observing and moderating such that you notice when they are being uh, unfair. 
Right. Okay. Because and as you, I think you said in in the, your first podcast with Damon that uh, apparently in IFS internal family systems, you're not supposed to have parts talk to each other. Um, this was which, a, which I think is the, also dubious. This was a fact I agree that Damon you. brought up, and then I was <laughs> yeah. like. And, and we were actually supposed to double check if that if that was really the I've, case. I've heard, I've heard that different people say different things on that. So yeah. some people are very strict about that, and some people say, "Well, you can, so long as something." I feel like we're in agreement that like parts talking is thumbs up, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's interesting. My my, what I thought internal double crux was was double crux, but taken to another level where you do parts work with someone. As you're discussing a subject, no, but that you could invent intense. that, and that would be quite. I will, <laughs> I will guinea pig. <laughs> that would, what would you even call that? Uh, we could we could just like grab different modalities and swoosh Internal them together and, and see what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's more like um, okay. That's like parts work, trying to get to the central agreed upon issue within yourself. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's basically just having a, a dialogue between two different parts of you, which I did with journaling anyway. And so it's nice to have a somewhat formal structure for that. But then there was the good stuff, and the good stuff was focusing. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't really get anything out of it through the class that was taught at CIFAR. But then I went to listen to the audiobook, which then changed my life forever. Amazing. Yeah, Eugene Gendlin's focusing. Yeah, and that's his voice, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very short audio book, so... Did we ever do focusing together? Uh, I, I always just do focusing naturally, and so I think it probably came up just in terms of trying to get to the heart of whatever the thing was. Could have been. But I don't think we did it formally, formally. Okay, okay, nice. Like, I would launch into it sometimes. So focusing, yeah, focusing is something that I, in fact, did a couple days ago with a client. It's something I still do with people. I've been doing it less over time because I suppose like it's just a very powerful tool that is not necessarily something that someone needs at any given time. So I feel like this is sort of how the how I feel about parts work coaches or therapists or anyone doing any single thing like that, like a focusing coach or something. It's like, that's not always going to be the thing you need when you show up. And so I've been doing, yeah, a lot less of that. But the occasion called for it a couple of days ago, and I kind of had forgotten how powerful it can be for someone who has never done that before. They were like, that was a trip. Like, they almost went on some hallucinogenic journey or something. And I, I have been on that journey, too, with focusing. And it's like, oh, I, I totally forgot that it can have that effect. Yeah, I think I think it is one of the foundational skills of all inner work. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely going to link that in the show notes, people. <laughs> That's going to happen. All right, so focusing was like the best thing by far that you found there. It's hard to compare them because it was about such a different thing from what the other things were, but it did change my life the most, I suppose. Got it. And it kind of alerted me that that because before I was a floating brain. And I was a floating brain and I noticed I had emotions and I thought, okay, I'm a floating brain and I have emotions. And, uh, now what? Like that's inconvenient because inconvenient. I was waiting for something <laughs> like that. I was waiting for that. Um, and, and then focusing, I mean, what focusing does is gives you not only the ability to access your emotions in a lot more, um, high resolution, but also, 
I, I always describe it as it's like reaching into your subconscious and then pulling out what's actually there, like what you actually think. Yeah. And that's amazing, like you, you, because there's this all of this stuff in your mind that you don't even know that you have, or that you kind of know, but it's kind of vague, or that it's kind of confusing. And then, and then, and then I can make it dialogue with my explicit ideas and actually use it. And that, yeah, it was very good. But then, because I was talking about being a floating brain, it alerted me to the fact that emotions and feelings in general, and senses of things and intuitions, are physically felt. Right physically felt in the body that I it's it's not just I have a brain and I have you know a heart or emotions or whatever I have a body that can do processing or something or that represents processing or like there is something such that if you are in touch with your body in a particular way uh it's like getting another brain it's like yep here you go Luli another brain for free yeah and I'm sure that this revelation was like not only is this an additional channel but it's a very powerful one yeah one of the things I think I noticed about focusing is when you do that, like digging deep and pulling things out, like rendering, you're also, at least this is the sense I get, and I would love to have someone who knows more about this double check it, but it feels as if you're sort of rewriting or reprocessing your relationship to certain stimuli, like how it's embedded deep in your, in your sort of like nervous system, your reflexive nervous system. And yeah, I've had people be like, I explored that, I pulled something out, and now I'm able to have a different relationship to that thing, whereas it was just like an automatic trigger before. Would you say that focusing then has overlap with coherence therapy? Definitely. Okay. Like, are you saying basically focusing sometimes is just a version of coherence therapy? Yeah, I think coherence therapy does a really good job of like, filling in a bunch of contextual theory that focusing kind of miss, like focusing is very personal, like individual oriented. And it's like, what is the, what is the content deep in the subconscious or unconscious that you're finding in yourself? And then like making sense of that. I think the, the really key piece that coherence therapy does in my eyes there is saying that not only applies to the bully from high school or that like single thing that you're thinking about, but in fact, you seem to be projecting a bunch of how you think the world works on the present day. That's not just about that single thing that you did capital F focusing on. So for example? Which I think is a big contribution. Uh, for example, you could do focusing about how this coworker is like irritating you or making you feel like bad all over when you encounter them or something like that. And you can like, yeah, get a lot of really great insight from just figuring that out and stuff or from going through focusing and, and bringing that up. And then I think what coherence therapy would add is something like, let's take a look at how you see, seem to be conceiving of your circumstances. What was your work environment like before you entered this new one? So are you sort of treating this, and I'm like pinging off of like a particular example that I, that I worked with someone on. Are you sort of... Um, anticipating that you're there's like high high threat level environment basically and that everyone's in competition and that everyone's saying any particular thing is like some kind of affront or attack or something like so that. So there's a way of finding patterns. Yeah, it's like I think it's like a way of digesting a whole context and like bringing to your attention 
a lot more moving pieces than just this is the single singular relation to this one person or one thing. And that can be really freeing because it's not just helpful for that one person, but it's like, oh, wow, I can completely just like shift my relation to the whole thing and just like exist very differently now. Yeah. Yeah. That would be, that would be my take. Yeah. Coherent therapy does a lot more. Also we'll link it in the show notes or something. Uh, one of my favorite things to, to draw from for sure. Okay. So you encountered focusing. I love this like narrative arc falling into rabbit holes and then climbing out of the rabbit hole and then like continuing on the journey. I think I'm enjoying this well, structure. It's the narrative arc of my life. <laughs> yes. The narrative arc of Lily's life. Yes. Yes. So focusing and then what was next? We're at CFAR. You discover focusing, largest impact on life. Yeah. I don't know if this is worth mentioning. It was just, it was such a tiny thing. And it was a framework that I think is mostly like not like only somewhat useful, but it, it was, it was a key like little bit that sort of helped the focusing thing, which is the Enneagram. Oh yes. <laughs> so there was a there was a, a, fad, a fad for the Enneagram. I think in the is there still are people still into the Enneagram? Yeah. In the rationalist. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think it's as good as Myers Briggs, which I think Myers Briggs, which I think is as good as the Harry Potter houses, which I also found a lot of use for. I think Enneagram is better than both of those. Really? Yeah. Really. So we could fight on Interesting. that. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> you want me to tell you why? Yeah. Okay. Then type me. Tell me why. Then type me. <laughs> I, oh, I don't know it that well. I don't know it well enough. Actually, oh, okay. I'd be curious what you you self typed as. But the key takeaway this this is how I interface with like a whole lot of paradigms and traditions is like a thing. I will stumble upon a gem that like resonates and makes sense, and I will forget most everything else, or I'll like understand how things basically work. And if I read a book, like very little of it would be surprising to me anymore. But like one single thing or a couple single things would be big. The one single thing from Enneagram for me is that the personality is constructed around core fears and it is basically just like an artificial construction of defenses. The personality, but also like the emotional regime that one has, emotional management regime and so on and so forth. Yeah, now, now that you bring it up, I do. Yeah, it is pretty good. Isn't That's it? fucking sweet. <laughs> That's something that, by, I mean, these are more like categorical things like, yeah, Harry Potter and, and which is great. I want to know what your house is, by the way. And secondary house. Harry Potter, Myers-Briggs, I think, yeah, Myers-Briggs, ocean type stuff, big yeah. five personality. I mean, like really hard to empirically validate a thing like, your entire emotional management regime is built out of a particular fear that you pick up as an infant or early child or something. But I think it's been very, not like predictive, I'm not sure if predictive is the right word, but it's been like really, really helpful for me in being able to chart where it would be good for someone to develop and why they seem to be presenting a certain defense structure. Yeah, I often recommend the Enneagram not as a personality test or sort of personality essentialism, but simply as a map of blind spots that you could have. Yeah. And so when you have a map of blind spots and fears and things that are difficult for your mind to engage with and, and ways that people are different from you as well. And so you can understand how people are different from you. And I think it's also useful there. 
Oh, that's yeah, that's really nice. It's it's like otherwise you don't have a great if you're trying to understand what makes other people tick, you're sort of limited to sometimes what their articulated expression of that is if you're like actually trying to collect these maps or something. And it's like very hybrid and ad hoc and like tough to collect. But with this type of thing, it's like, oh, from that core fear or thing they're trying to protect, they build out a worldview that looks like that. And oh, there's like nine of these or whatever. Nine? Yeah. Yeah. And it's really nice to have the like broad nine areas and, and yeah, just have that kind of like scaffold some of your thinking. Not nine plus plus the subtypes and plus the wings, the wings. <laughs> yeah, plus the, the Hoverian Hover, Hover, or something group halotype. No, that's not it. That uh, does not surprise <laughs> me that there would be whatever. some subgroups there's like, there's that are several, like several different subgroups. Yeah, yeah, eighty-seven. Yeah, you types. can, you can, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, you want to know gem number two from Enneagram that I love? What I think are like healthily expressed versions of these things and degenerative. And they'll have like a top three, which are quote unquote like healthier or better, uh, like neutral middle three, which is like you're do you're doing okay, and then like degenerative three or something like that. So there's like within the nine, there's sort of like nine levels or something like that, and that really resonated for me because one of the primary tenets of my coaching is that it's just like high like all of this is very highly contextual and what you're expressing can express differently in different contexts and like you don't need to feel bad about having this and so on and so forth. It's just if you have a healthy version of it or a version of it that's aligned with how you want to be or what's good for other people or whatever, then then that would be the better thing. And so that's why I love gem number two from Enneagram is sort of like, well, just because you're like a persuasive speaker or something like that doesn't mean that you're like, you need to fear accidentally like manipulating people all the time or something like that. It's like, that is something that occurs when you're in more of the darker, like degenerative spaces. But if you're a persuasive speaker and it's like, you know, the the top or top two levels or something, then really you're bringing people along for the ride and you're like finding creative ways for everybody to align and stuff like that. And like, that's the good version of that thing. Uh, so I, I took a lot, a lot of that. And it can be so counterintuitive to, especially if there's a part of yourself that you don't like yeah. and and that you are resisting that part of you and you think that it's the cause of all of your ills. If you're in this state where you are resisting it and uh, blaming it and everything, then it's very difficult for it to get to those healthy expressions of it. So having having a map of like, oh, it, that, that thing you think is a flaw isn't actually necessarily strictly a bad thing yeah there's a bad version of it but there's this version of it that you can move into yeah absolutely and so enneagram you're saying it was a small thing but really helpful it's such a such a small thing so so yeah the nine enneagram types are divided up into head types heart types and like body like gut body right I remember types. that and the different types have different, like, uh, basically blind spots around the other side of it. And so uh, my type, which was a, a head type, um, unsurprisingly enough, <laughs> in particular had blind spots around having a body. And I was like, what do you mean a body? 
Of course I have a body. No, no, the opposite. I was like, what do you mean? Well, well, this is just happens to be the thing that carries my brain. What are you talking about? And so so much like with focusing. So focusing kind of started helping me see that you can actually get information from your body. But I still didn't kind of like I to me, everything was divided up into explicit ideas that were sort of heady and feelings, which are emotions. um, And there were just these two different things. And then the Enneagram said, no, there is a third thing. And so, and so your emotions of the moment are different from your whole, you know, felt sense, your whole impression of something or your gut feeling on something. Mm. And I just didn't know that gut feeling was a fundamentally different thing from, I don't know, like a, a, an emotional wind or something like that. How do you parse that now? Uh, how do you mean? Or how do you distinguish those two things now? Depends on the context. So, yeah, I, I now think of things a lot more in terms of head, heart, and gut, and this is a simplification, but it's so weird. It turns out if you if you just put your attention in your gut, then you think in different ways. Mm. It's so, mm-hmm. and I, I just discovered a couple of days ago, there's, there's a particular spot that is three inches below your navel mm-hmm. that is especially useful for things like if you are a people pleaser and you get lost in people and you know you're around someone and you're getting and you're losing yourself if you just put some of your attention in your own body mm-hmm. and especially if you put some of your attention in that particular spot uh it it's very grounding mm-hmm. yeah i find it also kind of changes my voice so so if i'm kind of speaking from that place there's a lot more resonance mm-hmm. whereas if i'm kind of speaking from my head then it, then this is kind of what happens and and i get like this is a very sort of intellectual heady sort of way of speaking when we were talking about what it felt like to encounter you like a few years ago or something that's what it felt like that you were just purely operating from the mind yes. and yeah yeah and also also speaking from the chest and like feeling from the heart it, it right. like it does a different thing yeah 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 <laughs> Yeah, now, well, if we, if we, listeners are doing woo bingo, it's a good time to bring up chakras. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I think there's, I haven't looked too much into this, but I do feel like what they're getting at is that there are like processing centers that are not just in the brain that are important to tend to and to align in some way. And maybe I can have like a chakra expert on at some point to like, maybe one that can speak in the language that maybe me and my audience can metabolize or something. Right. Who, who is your audience? Uh, I don't know yet. Listeners, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> let me know who's listening to this. Uh, I think, I think um, some of them are people that want to get into this type of coaching mm-hmm. and or want to know more about me if they were going to work with me in some capacity. So not a lot. And then I think some people listen to this if they're thinking about how coaching or therapy could be useful for them and want to like listen to people talk about it in a way that's not aimed at them in a sort of like, you're my audience I'm talking to and I kind of want to sell you on therapy or coaching or something like that. But it's just like, what is it like for them to talk between each other? I would assume that's the audience. Don't have a, I don't have any demographics though. For yet. You. Yet, yet. I mean, that was the intended audience is like those two, basically. And then I'm hoping, obviously, that some of those people are one and the same, like people that want to be coaches, I think, should be receiving coaching and continue their own developmental journeys and so on. 
What is your relationship with your head, heart, and gut? I think it's pretty good. <laughs> did you know at the time, uh, as in years ago when we last met, like, did you did you see, ah, she's a very heady person? As a result of my relationship with my, yeah, my as own in, head, heart, as in the, like, because I think now I'd be able to tell instantly, like, what type of, like, where someone is coming from. Where am I coming from? I need to think about that. <laughs> it's not so instant, Luli. Well, I can talk while you think about it. Yeah. So I think back I think then. Somewhat more head than, yeah. than, than the rest. Yeah. I think it's head heavy most of the time. I think it's head heavy when I'm interacting. Yeah. And then. The reason I paused uh, before answering is because I thought that'd be rude to say. Oh, I don't think that's rude. Okay. No. I mean. That's, that's my projection then because I've been like, oh, I need to get out of my head and that has been my main problem. So I assume that's it, other people's problem. If I'm doing introspection on the spot, I think head heavy was always my default and I'm a lot less than before, similar to you maybe. And also I think it's like polite in certain situations or something, like maybe a podcast or something. But I guess when I'm around other kinds of people who are not so head heavy, it's less polite to be head heavy. It's like weird to to be talking at this frequency and this speed and so on and so forth around people that are like much more gut grounded and so I forth. I think it was you who first introduced me to the idea that people go to their head when they are avoiding some emotional thing. And that was, oh, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. that was a massive thing. Oh, shit. I know, I know it's just like, I know it's, you know, a known thing, but I, I did learn it from you at that reunion when we first met. That and that is, that's great. That is, it does sound like me because it's a thing that comes up because of the people I work with a lot. But that's a thing when it comes to Enneagram types or typing people in general. That's really helpful in a coaching session when someone's like sort of retreating into the land of ideas and abstracts and you're like lost as a coach. It's great to have that meta perspective and be like, oh, let's bring them back. That's what's happening here. Like when you're trying to get them to look at something and then they're discussing it at a distance, you know. Sometimes I think that the only thinking and talking and conversations that are any good are when you're not off in that space and when, when, when you are in touch with the, the felt sense of it, what do you think about, about this? I'm, <laughs> I'm surprised to hear you say that <laughs> Yeah. because if someone looked at your Instagram or your, your Twitter. like Twitter history and stuff like, and maybe the people you associate with until maybe the last couple of years, I'm not sure. I haven't really been keeping up that much. I would think that they would think you're in the, the heady academic cerebral abstract discussion of philosoph philosophical ideas area. You can be talking about philosophical ideas, but coming from your heart. Oh, I, I agree with that. I'm just saying I'm surprised based on sort of like a bastardized impression yeah, yeah. or something. Ah, well, I that is, that's because I am an Enneagram 5, not an Enneagram 6, like most rationalists. Oh, okay. And therefore, I'm not just following a formalist uh, program where I'm trying to debate the words that you use and the forms and technical correct. I'm like, I actually want to know what the truth is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think that's the difference between those. Actually, that was a thing when I was listening to your other podcasts that I sort of wished podcasts you were on. And shout out to Do Tell. Do Explain. Do Explain. Shit. 
That's bad. <laughs> That's not hate. I'm not accident. I'm not on purpose messing that up. Do explain. I enjoyed it a lot. The podcast you were on. Which one was that? Episode seven or fifty? Both. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I did my research. Oh wow. At certain points during those episodes, just to offer some, and if, uh, sorry, what, what, what's the host's name? Christopher. If Christopher, maybe my editor can like edit it so that I knew all of this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so. Christopher can take a joke, don't worry. What I would say, yeah, hope maybe Christopher will listen. That'd be great. So what I wanted, and maybe it didn't flow the, con- it didn't follow the flow of conversation, but at certain points I was like, I would love to know what she means by that and what he means by that. I know that's a very like rationalist discovering, the th- but but I actually think there's an enheartened version of that. Yeah, I love that phrase enheartened. Yeah, me too. Me too. Uh, and Is that a real word? Did you just make that up? Oh no. Oh wow. Um, oh, I'm so happy that exists. Yeah, yeah. Enheartened. It's nice. It's like embodied, but better yeah. or softer or something. So. Um, I forgot what I was saying. An enheartened version. Philosophical debating. Uh, no, just sort of like conceptualizing of words and or like mm. meanings. Because I felt like sometimes the the times when I felt like you two were talking past each other, and this is just general, was like you two were holding kind of different concepts. Yo, I just recorded a podcast episode for my own podcast like yesterday and I wish I had this then because I think there were a bunch of times when I was trying to get at what something means but I wasn't being enheartened and so it was slightly more irritating than than it will be now going forward. So thank you. Ooh, yeah, of course. <laughs> so what do you feel like the the process, what would be different in that process then? If you're you're all, you're kind of like recognizing this would be useful. So I'm curious. Instead of jumping to what is the answer to my question, which is a kind of a grabby, like, uh, I'm kind of irritated until I get the answer to this this thing and I need this particular piece of information to uh, finish the puzzle piece of this conversation. Instead of doing that, so so first of all, just phenomenologically, it is it is this experience of heart opening, which in practice means something like being more open-minded or being more, what is it? Being less partial for a particular answer and being more, what is the general scope of this? Mm-hmm. You're defining which word? There was a bunch. So the the episode is about inexplicit ideas, and I I was trying to figure out exactly what are inexplicit ideas and mm-hmm. how does it fit into David Deutsch's framework. And I think sometimes when I get uh, impatient to know something, then there's a kind of a grabby type of conversational moves. Mm. And instead, when I'm more just exploring the space and the landscape and and asking more open-ended questions, then interesting stuff can come up that doesn't... It, it's sort of like I apply too many filters when I'm doing the heady grabby thing. Mm. It filters in the sense that that only some information can filter up and then everything else doesn't count instead of what is the most interesting thing right now. Yeah, this is some of the reason, like, when people would discuss intellectual abstract ideas in a certain grabby way, like you're saying, or like with quote-unquote rigor, like a certain type of precision that is usually native to the industry or paradigm or whatever that they care about. It got really disorienting for me because it would stack a bunch of 
things that are like technically precise in a particular area. And maybe that person meant a different thing from that person. And then it'd be like mashing some of that stuff together. And I only recently, I guess in the last few years, became a lot more comfortable with myself and how I sit in those discussions or how I conduct those discussions. How were you uncomfortable before? Uh, I was uncomfortable because I didn't understand why that all felt like like a knotted string, like a heavily knotted string. And like, was it because I wasn't smart enough to be following them? Was it because I wasn't uh, well-read enough in the area in order to like understand what was going on? And I kind of came to some realization that like that, that can be true. And I'm okay with that being true sometimes. But like most of the time, it is this trying to draw really bright lines around things really quickly and paired with some some like infusion of ego or like style of discourse that can be like a little bit punishing or like pushy. And when two people are kind of like engaging in that, which I thought was how intellectual discussions are supposed to go, that like triggered me emotionally in a way, but also like made it really hard for me to intellectually disentangle what was going on. And then the net result was this like really naughty emotional feel towards a lot of these things. And like I had had people tell me, and it didn't match with my self-concept where people would be like, oh, you're really cerebral and intellectual. Like you're, you're pretty smart. And I'm like, no, when I encounter those people, like I just kind of freak out internally or something. And then I realized it was sort of more of this relational thing happening. When you say encounter those people, what type of people? Uh, the people that you, you were talking about your grabby style of doing something, but like that's their default and it's way more intense and they think they need to do that, turn that on whenever they're talking about something like that. How do you deal with it now? Well, first of all, having a, like an understanding that that's what's going on is super valuable. And I think like this is a great generalizable lesson for a lot of people in a lot of social situations, which is like when you realize what's happening and how you're fitting together with people, you can adjust better. Sometimes it's not even explicit, hopefully after a while. And this is sort of like you encounter a field and then your field sort of like does something different in order to like blend in with that better or something or fit with it in a way that's not harmful for you. That was a really esoteric way to put that. It sounds like you changed your intuitions and I don't have the full bit of code that I could run that would also do the same thing for me if I were in that situation. I could dig at this more or we could continue on depending well, on what's interesting to you. Yeah, no, I, I like the digging. I like the digging. I like the on the spot introspection. That's great. I think what's happened. So sometimes I bounce. Sometimes I'm like, I don't think this this interaction is worth salvaging in a particular way. And it's really, it has no, con like if I walk into some, at this conference we're going to go to, I walk into some circle of people that are engaging in this way. I think early version of me would have wanted to contribute so bad and would have felt so like uh, ashamed that I couldn't if I walked into something like that. Now it's more like, oh, this is a style of engagement that these people like and are comfortable with, or they're just doing it, right? They're just there. And I don't need to partake, which is fine. So that might happen. Another thing can be if I feel like it's not beyond salvaging, I'll try to do a like rhetorical move that will open the conversation up a bit and make it a little bit more exploratory and like 
open heart and so on and so forth. Uh, that is ideal. That's like one of the nicer ways to have that happen. Sometimes when I am trying to prove a point, I will do the enheartened thing, even though I know it won't land and like sort of want to make a statement about like the way this discourse is going and then like leave. How do you be enheartened and try to prove a point at the same time? It's sort of like leading by example. Ah. It's like, I'm, I'm going to do this regardless of what you got, you all are doing. And I like, hope you will do it too, but you probably won't choose to pick that up or nor what I'm saying. And that's okay. You know? So it's not like prove a point, like fuck all of you. It's like, here's some possible way you can exist, which is like this. And if you think that's cool, I would love to continue interacting with you mm -hmm. type of thing, mm -hmm. which sounds like so, some things I could anticipate some people listening, thinking or saying is like, if you are truly enheartened or like trying to uh, embody this vibe of living from the body and the gut and or having unity or something, why are you trying to insert an energy where uh, that energy is like not there, not wanted? Like, why are you trying to force that? And my answer to them might be, and I'm not sure if that's where you're going or something. My answer would be like, my issue with some of this in heart and stuff is like, that's not how the world works in a lot of different ways, areas. So a lot of these people retreat into, I'm going to become a guru or I'm going to surround myself in this community or I'm going to treat myself really softly in my apartment or I'm going to only be in places where like this is allowed and accepted. And I think that that's basically not interacting with like real full contact reality. And it's like sometimes you're going to be in uncomfortable situations. Sometimes you need to inspire people. Sometimes you need to show other people a different way. You need to show up in an uncomfortable circumstance. And I think that's kind of the way you change the world, actually. And so the retreat thing bothers me a lot about some mindfulness traditions in a lot of ways. This is so... So almost something that I agree with very strongly. And yet there's something very subtle that I disagree with strongly. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, I feel like I both simultaneously agree and disagree strongly. Yeah, let's, let's, let's hear it. I think it's some, well, the way that I think about it is that, yeah, so you're talking about retreat. If it is genuine for you that this interaction or whatever isn't going optimally and that the genuine from your heart, from your body, from unity, whatever is saying, oh, like coming from your heart is the best thing in this situation. It's not like th there's a way to think of that in terms of leading by example and those people are wrong and I am right. There's a way of doing it where it's something like it doesn't, it's not up to you whether they agree with you or not. But what is up to you is that you can convey how you feel about the thing. And then so you can still come at it from this, I keep using the word impartiality because it's to do with the next framework that was completely life-changing that I haven't gotten to yet. Uh -huh. But, uh, we're, but still, we're still in the rabbit <laughs> we're like hole halfway four. through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're still in the rabbit hole. Um, so, so, so the thing I agree with is, it, so the contact with reality thing is bringing your authentic, vulnerable opinions, feelings, etc. And then the softening to that, I guess, or the 
it, it, it really depends on the vibe that you bring to those conversations. Because if you are doing it in order to try to persuade them, then I feel like there's something just slightly off. Oh, I was going to make a note. My modification to what you were saying, I think, aligns with what you would say. Okay. Is like very similar to my overall coaching philosophy, which is like, I have a piece that I think would be good here, is sort of the, the, the approach. It's not like, I know how this interaction could be better. Or like, I can fix it or, or like solution oriented type language that a lot of EAs and rationalists use. It's like, I have a sense that I'm not enjoying this for sure. I have a sense that it's likely that you all aren't either or don't know ways this could be different. I'm going to like throw this out there and I hope you like it and I hope that it changes the interaction. Is that still not what you're saying? It's, uh, it could be, the words could be compatible with what I'm saying, and there is a slight vibe Knowing thing. I could be wrong. Um, okay. There's still a slight, I think, but I think it's going to be easiest to explain if I go into what this framework that I'm coming from is. Is I don't know part if of we, the story? It is part of the story. Oh, man, that's brilliant. <laughs> you, you did a move. You did a move. I didn't even see it. Yeah. Okay. But I don't remember where we got up to in the story. I could just like uh, briefly summarize the... Sure. Well, I discovered Alexander Technique and this this mysterious framework that I haven't said yet around the same time. I, I discovered Alexander Technique online before that. So I don't know if you want to go into that or whether we should take this this detour while it's still juicy. I think we should follow the juiciness. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So I said that the, the Landmark Forum is the best mass personal development course, mm -hmm. the best course, personal development course that exists. <laughs> Wait for it, everybody. Is. Oh, I have, I should have a drum roll thing. Well, you can get your editor to insert one mm. or we could do one manually. Okay. Is uh, the view connection course or the art of accomplishment connection course. Have you ever listened to the art of accomplishment podcast? Yes. Okay. The view, but you've not done the course. I've not done the course. Okay. So it, it, uh, it used to be called the view course. Now it's called the connection course. I, I think it is of a similar level of fundamentalness to maybe not quite focusing, but Alexander technique. It, it's like, it's like, it's just below focusing an Alexander technique in terms of fundamentalness. Maybe it's the same thing. When you say below. Well, maybe it's the same. I don't know. Like level in, in terms of, oh, below, uh, right. Because uh, fund, fundamental. No, I mean, low. as in, as in, uh, it is slightly more applied. Okay. I got it. Okay. So, uh, so the frame, have I talked to you about it before? You actually tried to get me to do it yeah. once. And I was like, that's interesting. And then didn't do it. Yeah, cool. So, but the basic idea is that, so it's called VIEW, which stands for vulnerability, impartiality, uh -huh. empathy, and wonder. Mm -hmm. And each of these wonder. four concepts are, yeah, wonder also has come up in this conversation. When I, when I said like that grabby trying to know, so they, they define wonder as, basically curiosity without the grabbiness. So some kinds of curiosity can be, oh, I need to know. And if yeah, I don't know, yeah, then yeah. I'm not okay. Whereas wonder is the sort of open, like, huh, like, what is that? Okay. And there's a sort like of a that. sense of awe and a kind of like just following whatever is interesting yeah, yeah. and and like, huh. So that's wonder. My slight, because I'm a little bit of like a, a word definition Nazi for myself. Although it doesn't make sense because it's like relative. But also wonder feels passive. Um, you wonder at. 
Ah, there we go. It's, it's wonder the imperative. Wonder full stop. Love it. Uh, sorry, wonder uh, exclamation mark. Okay, I'm on board with wonder yeah. at. And you bring wonder to. Love it. Yeah. Okay. So view. Yes. So uh, so impartiality also super important and it's already come up several times in this conversation where I think it's also basically the same as non-doing. Mm -hmm. So I impartiality is not having any agenda. Mm -hmm. like like genuinely being okay with any any result any communication from the other person because like often we come to communications uh, or conversations trying to get to a certain place or trying to avoid certain reactions and if you are trying to avoid a particular reaction you are closing the conversation down in a certain way and you're not letting people have their own experience. Mm. And so if you come with genuine impartiality, like you can yell at me, you can, you know, do whatever, you can have whatever reaction you have. Uh, and, and if I'm okay with whatever you bring, then we can get to a much deeper place conversationally. And then if you apply that to your life, again, you can get to much deeper places because you're not cutting off pieces of life because you have to have it this way. Yeah. So that's impartiality. Then vulnerability is the thing that I was feeling juicy about in, in the previous discussion just then, uh -huh. which is that, so they define vulnerability as, well, before I did this course, I thought vulnerability was basically bad. It was basically irrational. It was basically this thing where you open up yourself to attack and then people can poke your squishy insides and that people do it because they want to get closer to other people because they're insecure and they don't want to just do it a normal, like well-paced, slowly getting to know someone and only revealing things when it's actually safe. So I used to be have this fairly negative view about vulnerability. But their definition of vulnerability is when you speak your truth, even when it's scary, hmm. or you speak your truth despite the consequences. And this is a, a more empowered version of vulnerability where you, you notice, oh, wow, there's a thing that's a bit scary. I could say that. And because it's true for me. And then, and then it turns out when you just make vulnerable reveals in this, in this way, it, it immediately goes to very potent parts of the conversation. Mm. And you can do things like, like uh, as you were talking about, where you're getting this like not very nice interaction and you don't really like it and whatever. And instead of being like, ah, they should be different because they're not doing interaction in the ideal way. Then you're like, wow, I'm really not enjoying this interaction. Or like, wow, I, I don't know how to enjoy this interaction or, or something like that. And th this has been completely life-changing for me in having difficult conversations with people. Okay. Do you mean saying that explicitly or do you mean thinking that to yourself and taking an action based on that? You could do either. Uh, either one could be a, a you know natural, but saying it explicitly can make conversations do double takes in really enjoyable ways. I'm on board with both of those. I think... There is a type of person that we may know who would not do that at a graceful time. I think there's like graceful ways to do that. Like, is your position that's always okay to do for all the group interactions? And that's like true vulnerability? If you're doing it in an ungraceful way, I would guess that either you're not doing it in a vulnerable way or you are missing the empathy part of the view thing and... I, I would suggest doing the course because it has some exercises. When you say missing the empathy part, this this was going to be my issue. Yeah. Is you're not accounting for the other people's experience? Right. Uh, yeah. So like someone bulldozing in and being like, this conversation makes me feel shitty 
and I don't like it. And everyone being like, okay. Yeah, so all, all four of the uh, the view letters are important. And so the empathy one, just just for completeness, because I've said all of the other three, mm-hmm. is, and, and again, it, it this this changed my, my view of empathy because I always thought I'm a really empathetic person. I like, I'm just a sponge for other people's experience. But what happened was that by being a sponge for other people's experience, I would leave myself. And then there are the opposite side of, of this, which is that people are so in their own experience that they don't like yeah. feel the other people. They define empathy, Art of Accomplishment defines empathy as feeling the other person while also feeling yourself. Mm-hmm. And so the simple thing, um, well, yeah, basically the simple thing is to put some of your attention in your body and some of your attention in their body. Mm-hmm. And uh, quite often people will do sort of like I used to basically leave my body entirely. And then there are other people who like never sort of put that attention in the other person. And incidentally, I found out that when I did this, the resolution for my empathy of the other person's feelings went up as in how sensitive I was to their experience Instead of getting less, Lower. which I would think because I'd oh. be paying attention to my own, it got higher. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I could feel both of us yeah, much yeah, yeah. more. Yeah, yeah. That was that was mind mind blowing to me. What do you think is the mechanism there? If you can't feel yourself, if you're dissociating from your own body, you are dissociating from the thing that feels. Yeah. And you're cutting yourself off from information about them exactly. that can feel more about them. Yeah. Okay. And also it's difficult to understand which feelings are yours and which feelings are theirs if you are refusing to look at your own feelings. Mm-hmm. That's another thing I got. This is an aside which I also discovered in one of these Art of Accomplishment courses. It was their decision course as it happens, which was that I realized that when I when I feel... So, so it was a situation where I was thinking of setting a boundary with a friend. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to set this boundary. And I was, and I was like, how, oh, why do I, well, like, what am I resisting there that makes me not want to set that boundary? And so I thought about it, like, ah, oh, what is the feeling that I'm resisting? Because that's part of the art of accomplishment framework. It's like a lot of your actions are based on not wanting to feel a certain feeling. And then if you feel it, then things can move. And I noticed, ah, oh, the feeling I don't want to feel is disappointment. I thought that's that's weird. Why would I not want to feel disappointed? Like, like, why why would disappointment be the thing for me setting for me setting that boundary? And then I realized, oh, this is their disappointment, and I'm feeling it in my own body, and so I'm resisting feeling that disappointment wow. in my own body, even though it's theirs. And I thought, oh, okay, that's that's theirs. What what do I feel about setting this boundary, or what would I feel? I was like, wow, that that feel great. Yeah, I'd love that boundary. That 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 would make life much better. And and then and then I could distinguish their feelings that I was feeling in my own body from my feelings. And then that was a sort of like massive unlock in terms of uh yeah, being able to feel and uh, empathize appropriately and being able to set boundaries and not being not having that partiality of needing people to have a particular emotional reaction to me because before I had that I couldn't, like, it was very difficult to allow particular reactions from them if I didn't want to feel particular emotions because I would be, like, absorbing it, basically. Yeah. The technical term that hits my mind is merged. You're merged with them? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. How did you know personally that, and I think this could be a great potential question and answer for anyone listening, that that content was not your own? 
like you were it was their disappointment and this is a maybe very hard thing to articulate and verbalize but it, it was it was simply so i first noticed that disappointment was just a, a weird thing to feel for setting a boundary like it, it just it didn't make sense logically and so that made me look and then and mm -hmm. then the, the move i did was just okay suppose that is their their feeling about it or my you know projection of their feeling uh what would i feel about this or what would i feel if i if i was if i wasn't feeling disappointment what would i feel or what would i feel <laughs> what do i feel about this and then i could just kind of separate out yes yeah yeah you actually highlighted two moves i do a lot with people yeah one is coherence so we, we talked about coherence therapy but i sort of like grab that and use it all over the place you called it logic but i'm sort of like this is not going the way i expect it to go or or like prima facie like how should these things be linked together or whatever and like different result that's weird and it's not like bad result or irrational or something like that but it's like huh that's a skew so like what's going on there that's one and so whenever people are talking or whenever they're going through something i'm i'm always like a part of my mind is automatically like crawling the the coherence of what they're saying in some sense, like linking those things together. The second thing, yeah, sort of uh, a question of if that other person were just fine with it, how do you feel about it is also really unlocking there. And I think that was similar to what you were saying or like a very uh, like an, an alternative way to get there, which was sort of like. I think I would have found that harder to do the, if they were okay with it, then how would I feel about it? I, I could have still done it, but that would have been just a bit harder for me to do mm. compared with just simply being like, okay, their disappointment is there and I can feel it. And what do I feel about this? Mm. Uh, and I think the reason is that something like a clinging to, um, oh, but they're not okay with it. And so, how can you say that? And and if and if if they were okay with it, then what? The, and then I would kind of go. Mm. Whereas this allows them both to be there. Mm. But that's just how my mind works. So yeah. if, if other people work with that, then that's great. Well, it strikes me that like both of those would be really useful and differently useful for different kinds of minds. So it sounds like your mind is aided quite a bit by frameworks, right? So like art of accomplishment and the acronyms and the things. And the framework helps you parse and process stuff a lot. And then the other strategy, I guess, is something like, I, I'm coming from a coaching perspective, obviously. I guess it's like toggling different maps or experience or like error checking or something, something like that. I wonder to what extent it's comfort with counterfactuals. Yeah. Yeah, it's that. It, it, it's that, but it's a lot less like, it's very quick. It's intuitive. It's a lot less, you know, like I have this counterfactual hypothetical situation or something. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd say um, that would probably be a, a decent characterization of it. I think probably also what's happening in my mind is that I'm doing a kind of IFSE type move in that yeah, I'm, I'm quite familiar with having different parts of my mind that think and feel different things. And so it's very intuitive for me to just tap into one of them. And so if I can just say, ah, this disappointment feeling is one part, what does the other part feel? Then I've immediately got the answer. Whereas if I'm 
trying to invent a new part where I'm imagining someone not feeling something that I, I think they will actually feel, then then that's a sort of additional cognitive processing for me. Yes, this is an important piece. So I was trying to get to the heart of how you knew that content wasn't Luli's or something. Attribution, like internal attribution is really hard. I think IFS is really helpful for that. It's like, what part of me is, or like, where did this idea come from? Or where is this influence coming from? And I think the fact that you have IFS and then you probably have a bunch of other content that helps with that could make it so that you were able to do all that yourself. I don't know that the attribution part actually matters that much. Like oh, if, if, if I think of it in terms of, I do have part of me that feels disappointment rather than, oh, this is just a part that comes from someone else. I think that still would have been easier given that I then had access to another part that felt something else. As in, so it was more I about was, contrasting and not attribution. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think the attribution. But thing isn't the is attribution cool. the yeah, thing maybe. that allows the contrasting? Uh, no. So, like, so long as you divide it up, so long as you've got one part there that feels is disappointment. disappointment. Yeah. And then, so there is disappointment, and there is, and then what is that? And then the the that is like actually excitement and empowered and whatever. Interesting. Okay. Like, I personally, I don't know that there is disappointment would have been enough for you. Right? Because you knew you were disappointed. Yeah, that I would was the have, issue. I would, yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. No, you're then, right. It's like, where is that coming from? Okay, it would have made it a different problem. It would have still improved it, but it would have, yeah, it would have meant that I'd have to then deal with the disappointment sort of in, in isolation. And although it's easier to deal with that uh, disappointed part, it's still not as easy as like, oh, I can just like not care. <laughs> right, right. And was that what you were able to do? No, yeah, it, it's still, I still cared to an extent because I cared about my friend, mm -hmm. but it was no longer coming from a, uh, what is that? Um, coming from a place of insecurity or a, a place of being wounded? Like sometimes I think when people are trying to empathize or care, it is grabby in a different way that's like, I need to fill part of myself by... Yeah. I no longer had to resist the feeling of disappointment because it wasn't mine to feel. And so as long as I was in a relationship where I was resisting a particular feeling, then that was causing these tangles. And the moment I could be allowing that feeling to happen in someone else, I mean, if I also allowed it to happen in, in myself, that probably would have also solved the problem. Yeah, yeah. But But in this case, it's just a very easy way of not being in that relationship where I'm resisting a feeling. Trying to not allow certain things also makes that more difficult, right? Like sometimes when you're, you're accounting for other people's experience, but you're like, I'm going to disappoint them a little bit and that's okay. Our relationship is recoverable or something. I'm not sure what the particulars of your situation, but that can also be helpful. That, I mean, that folds into a question about Alexander technique that I had in general, which is like, is it always good to expand your awareness? Like, is, is it always good to avoid resistance? Like, is there no place for constricted awareness or resistance? There's definitely place for constricted awareness. And I would imagine there is also place for resistance. Yeah. Yeah. I can think of, of both cases. I'm curious about the one you're most sure about and also the one you're less sure about. So for expanded awareness, the typical example is you are on a busy subway train 
and people are three inches from your face. And if you expand your awareness to the entire coach and you are in everyone's space and you're able to talk to everyone, that's going to be uncomfortable for most of the people there, especially the ones very close to you. And so what happens when you're on this train is that you bring your awareness into your little bubble, you have your own little bubble, and then everyone feels safe because everyone is in their own little bubble. Right. If this were a video podcast, I would show you. <laughs> like mm. It's very, like you can feel it. Cool. Interesting. Okay. And how about resistance? Resistance, uh, I can imagine some things like if you actually are not well-resourced enough to be able to uh, take whatever the emotional thing is mm -hmm. in that yeah. situation. Like if it, like it could genuinely overwhelm you such that then you're like generally less capable of doing things. Yes. So you might need to get into a safer situation first. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Or maybe there's some external thing which is dangerous. And in order to deal with this genuinely dangerous ex external thing, you might need to put your fear aside for a moment. Okay. Yeah. I I think I agree with all that. The the well resourced enough, I consider like there's, you know, bandwidth, energy, uh, emotional maturity. I would also throw in there something like awareness and understanding. We were talking about vulnerability earlier or later, depending on how we chop this up. And I think there's a version of like people who try to get instantly, incredibly the most vulnerable they possibly can, where they have gotten burned a lot by basically like opening themselves up, as you say, to attack or manipulation or something. And I think that in a world where people are a little bit more understanding about the right times to take certain opportunities, they would resist doing that with the wrong people or the wrong situation or something. Yeah, that's that's why I like the the art of accomplishment version of of vulnerability because because if you are speaking your truth, and then if it's a situation that you genuinely cannot handle, then you're not going to say this thing that opens you up for attack because you are. Well, you might not know that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But but I mean, there's a different thing. Vulnerable, as in I'm going to open my my heart to whoever walks in uh, and mm. and open up to attack, is a different thing from. Speaking your truth, even when it's scary. Okay, I'm going to put a name on this bullet. Are you ready? Authentic relating. Okay. So I get the sense that, and, and maybe I can have a chat with an authentic relating person. Community of people who I feel embody this sort of like, we're going to go zero to 100 on vulnerability like right away. And that's the way to live life. And like, that's the nature of good connection and so on and so forth. And maybe I'm bastardizing how they feel about that. And I would love to have someone correct me, but authentic relating people strike me as, as those types. I have a, I wrote something about these people that I kind of want to get up. Okay, cool. Uh, it's very derogatory. All right. <laughs> Let me see if I can find it. Yeah. She's going to find her, her bullet and um, we're going to, maybe cause a stir. It'd be really interesting to have a little bit of a backlash from the people who really want to be vulnerable and connect the most in the world. The thing is, there is a way of doing it and just, just take the connection course and then you can do it without the weird bits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, like you, oh, can, you can do it from empowerment. The derogatory is slipped it's out. Already it's slipped out already started. It's already starting. All right. So... Is this from a tweet? This is No, this is from a, a private correspondence, um, correspondence. bitching session. Yeah, so that there's there's a type of guy 
It's the type of guy who uh, is really into authentic relating. And then when you meet, then then they're doing this like authentic, like. Okay, like you- <laughs> listeners, <laughs> Luli's eyes, she's got like the bug eyes. She's staring deep into my soul right now. Yeah, yeah in a way that's slightly uncomfortable. <laughs> slightly to vary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, so about this, uh, this type of guy. Uh, I say they ooze a kind of desperateness and are allergic to true presence because that would require dropping the pretense of presence, which they use to avoid feeling things like the anguish of separation. They think that connection comes from winning at the game of, uh, of presence. Actually, it comes from serving yourself, your habits. Oh, right. Oh, wow. This is, uh, this is quite rival voices Uh, it comes from serving yourself up to annihilation. So, uh, in other words, this is a very condensed, um, series of messages. Okay. So, so basically you've got like habits and constrictions and fears and emotions that you don't want to feel. If you can allow your awareness to cover those, to, uh, be able to look nakedly at yourself, uh, and to notice those things, like basically ego death type stuff, like, you know, serve them up to annihilation, then that can give you actual presence because instead of having all of these constrictions and things you're avoiding, then you're just actually here. So uh, devil's advocate, uh, I'm going to try to do this, for authentic relators would be like, I'm just doing what you're saying faster by jumping straight to... Yeah, but they're not. They're, they are. Uh, I'll, I'll read out one last thing and then I'll sure. reply to that directly. They are afraid of their brain because that's what make them made them nervous about talking to girls. So they dissociate from their brain and try to do everything by feeling it out, resulting in simply being run by their habits and just as stuck, but in less obvious ways. It's only when mind and body, heart and head come together as one that you can have true freedom. There you have it, folks. These are the the, the private correspondence of Luli talking about authentic relating. Okay, so the unity there is important for you. Yeah, well, I think what's happening with those people is that they are doing a pretense version of the actual presence thing. Yeah. So the actual presence thing, I, I can model it now. Like there's this expanded awareness, like I'm noticing what my feelings are, like I've got a bit of a nervousness in my stomach around and tripping over those words earlier. Whereas there's a there's a different thing, which is I, you know, I want to know what your experience is and let me tell you something that I find, like let me tell you some piece of my shadow. Eyes getting bigger. <laughs> Yeah, it's not just eyes getting bigger. I'm collapsing my yeah, awareness of the world. I feel like you're going to jump across the table. Exactly, exactly. Ugh. You're going to be like nose to nose. Yeah, and 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 oh oh, let me let me tell you something a bit salacious about me so that I can be vulnerable. Mm. And what this is is cutting off from what it is like for the other person. Mm-hmm. And so they're not actually present with the experience with the other person. Mm. There's there's an aspect of it that they are refusing to look at because that's what they are afraid of because that caused them to be completely uh, unable to express themselves before, so they go in the opposite direction. Okay, so this could be instructive for them, but also a lot of people. How do you know you're dealing with pretense, the pretense of an intention instead of the real thing? Like, this is a thing I'm always trying to be on the lookout for for myself, but also when I'm working with clients. Number one thing is, can you feel constriction in your body? Okay. Why? Oh, uh, because mind tension always manifests as body tension and vice versa. Okay. 
There's an issue that what you feel tense about might not be the thing that you think it is. And so there could be many different layers of thoughts and emotions and tensions and things. So if, if I'm, yeah, if I think about a, like an actual example, okay, so it, what, what, it's like a, a client who wants to know whether they're being fake or what's the situation? Yeah, sure. So a situation could be, how do I know I'm living in the moment? Some people are like really trying to nail this presentness or something. And there's a pretense of that, right? And then there's like, what it would really feel like to be doing that. How do I know that's what it is? Like people will try to describe to me that and like, I'm trying. And it's like, I notice I'm trying to be present. And so I'm not present. Yeah. I'm like more present than I was, but I'm not like there. So I guess the question is why are they trying to verify whether they're there or not? Because it matters to them that they get there. I mean, okay, it makes sense to me. Yeah. But, um, and they think that you, they won't just know it when they see it. Right. Okay. I think that's a, that's sort of what I'm asking. Yeah. It's like, how would you, like, what are the hallmarks of knowing it when you see it when it comes to intention and pretense of intention or something? Yeah. And, and I think there is a thing where it is possible to make that mistake in that there's a difference between fully living in the moment and living on autopilot, which can look kind of similar, mm. like, like ne both of them don't have this, uh, self-reflection thing where you're constantly going in and, and checking out like, Oh, how am I doing? Uh, you know, how's the situation? Like both of them are just like fully there in a certain way, except one is closed off habitual, won't deviate from the existing habit and the other one is this free light, able to change direction at any time, able to come up with new ideas. I don't know. I mean, the experience of being in the moment is is just like quite a light, easy, there's some kind of elation associated quite often, not always, but quite often. Mm. Whereas autopilot feels constricted and yeah, unpleasant. Mm. Does that answer the question? Yeah, I think it did. I think it did. Okay. So I think we could go back to the narrative arc, yeah. if you'd like. Sure. Where we were, I believe, was... I had skipped to the view connection course, our right. accomplishment connection course. Right. Is that is that the thing you wanted to skip to? Or was there were there things in between? You, you were on like internal double crux and focusing and... So during the pandemic, uh -huh. I discovered the Alexander Technique, and this has been the biggest thing in my life. Alexander Technique? What What's is that? What's that? <laughs> <laughs> um, most, okay, if you Google Alexander Technique, you will find stuff that isn't, A, isn't even a really a good description of what traditional Alexander Technique is, and B, is not the type of Alexander Technique that I do. So just putting that there as a disclaimer. Okay. My school is, uh, my teacher sometimes describes it as the radical left wing of the, no, the, the anarchic left wing of the Alexander world nice. compared with the traditional world that is a bit more um, body oriented. And there are actual Alexander Technique body practitioners. Yes. Out there. Yes. That are like licensed. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I'm currently in training for my certification. 
Oh, in the in the more traditional one too. In the well, it, it's 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 all or the one anarchic thing. Left it's, or it's, both. it's all it's all the same thing. It's just different approaches. So they both get you to the same place, but just via different methods. Okay. So what what is the Alexander technique? What I, is the Alexander? <laughs> technique? What is the Alexander technique? There are so many different levels that I could just describe it. Basically, it is a way of getting out of habits. Mm-hmm. That's that's one way you can think about it if, you, if you're thinking of it like a productivity technique. Mm-hmm. It is a way to get mind-body unity. Um, in other words, having instead of uh, you know having your mind kind of going off and do one thing and then your body is sort of like uh, sort of at odds, this is any kind of tension, then you, yeah, you get, uh, it, it's hard to put into words. One way of thinking about it is that it is a theory and practice of how to get out of your head, mm-hmm. how to like not be stuck in these rumination cycles and how to be fully embodied with whatever you do. It's a way of uh, getting flow on command. It's a way of feeling without tension, like effortless, light, and, and, and it's difficult to describe because it is a whole framework. And so in order to kind of describe what it is, then either I have to describe the framework, which won't make any sense, or the results of what happens when you get this framework, okay. um, which is kind of what I've been doing. So, so the, the stuff about getting out of your head and, and getting more embodied and everything, those are the results. The framework itself is, well, it comes back to this um, non-doing thing. Uh-huh. We, we, we go through life and we think that we need to try. We think that we need to put effort into what we do. Uh, we need to focus. We need to uh, make ourselves do the right thing. And all of this effort that we put in is unnecessary. And not only do we do all that on the uh, on the obvious level of, oh, I've got this to-do list that I need to get done and I guess I will make myself do my homework or whatever – on the minutest of physical movements, we mm-hmm. do this. When we are sitting up from a chair, almost everyone, uh, when they are trying to get out of a chair, will kind of heave themselves up. They will they will start tensing their back before their bum has even left the chair, and they will be thinking as if they are already standing up mm-hmm. and and using a lot of excess tension. And it's because they are they are trying to already be at that end point. And we do this with all sorts of physical movements and we do it with all sorts of mental movements as well. So like the to-do list and just like in life in general. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's the, uh, the cult of doing, as, as F.M. Alexander said. Mm-hmm. And so what is the alternative? Well, so people think that either it's doing, efforting, all of that, or it's like doing nothing, you know, not getting anything done. I guess I'm just going to be a lazy slob. I'll watch TV, whatever. And there is a thing that is neither doing nor doing nothing or being lazy, which is the, the effortless, the flow, the, your entire system is acting to do the action or to, to think about the thing or like, like you are, you're acting in unison. Mm -hmm. And so Alexander technique is the field of how do you actually get to that acting in unison, uh, unity, mind, body, unity 
state. Mm. And then it has some particular techniques to, to do that and some particular ways of noticing when you are going into your uh, habits, when you're going into your autopilot and getting out of that. And so fundamentally, it's about how to have like more freedom in your life so that you're not constricting and therefore only doing like one particular thing, but you are available to do whatever, like you are available to change what you're doing partway through to, uh, available to new ideas, uh, that sort of stuff. So if I'm charting the life of Luli, yeah. you are emerging as a person who's like wanting to get things done in the world. You've been surrounded by a non-coercive sort of parenting and upbringing, and now are encountering techniques for dealing with the ways you may be coercive with yourself or forcing yourself to do stuff. And those things were, I remember when we were coaching together, like IFS type stuff, you were getting really into that at the time. Other things, I'm assuming. And then you hit Alexander Technique. It seems to me like you concluded, wow, this is way better than, or way more useful for me at this juncture than just troubleshooting why I can't get my Twitch channel up reliably or why I can't do YouTube or whatever it was that you were like struggling with and wanting to do. I'm wondering if, is that the rendition that, that is in your mind as well? I would say, yeah, slight difference. It was more that Alexander Technique was a more fundamental fix or improvement or or it, it was a, a thing that just solved a bunch of like different things, okay. but not everything. And I would say right. that the connection course did, did, did the rest oh, okay. for the most part. Um, I, I would say, incidentally, Alexander Technique and the View Connection course are also very, very overlapping, but right. one of them is more about going into your emotions, and then the other one is more about being out in the world. I mean, you can personalize this if you if you want, but also you could answer it in the form of if someone looks into Alexander Technique heavily and takes the course or something like that and gets really into it, what types of things does it not, sometimes not fully resolve on its own? I think both the view framework and the Alexander technique framework can ultimately solve, you know, basically anything. And incidentally, I think there's a, a type of Buddhism that, that is basically the same as these two things as well. Non-dual uh, yeah, not. I think I, my impression is that non-dual awareness meditation or some species of Buddhism. The thing is, I don't know too much about Buddhism, so I can't say which ones exactly. But some of them are basically the same thing. Mm -hmm. I think all all three of these can get you to like can can address any kind of given issue, but they take a different amount of time to get to different issues. And so I think uh, when I started, so both my, my view and uh, or my art of accomplishment work and uh, my Alexander Technique work, work made the other go much faster. Yeah. So the types of things that um, the connection course does is it allows you to find emotional barriers, which could be blocking your um, Alexander Technique stuff, which is usually done in a more physical way. And that is in the form of content. How do you mean? Like you're identifying what those barriers are. You're like getting handles for what they are conceptually and then trying to work with that. 
I, I think so. Like, as opposed to like as opposed to meditation or maybe Alexander yeah. technique, where it's a lot like just be a certain way. Right. And uh, it's not yeah, working a little bit of through. Uh huh. Yeah, I would say a little bit of both. Like so that there's so view is a mindset. Yeah. Um, and so it's this impartial, empathetic, full of wonder, vulnerable. <laughs> yeah. uh, and if you come to any given problem with that mindset, then things open up. Or if you come to any conversation with that mindset, then things open up. Okay. But also the connection course itself will then work with content because you're doing these exercises and then actual content comes up. Got it. Okay. So the the sort of like three overlapping, this like Venn diagram or something you're pointing out is a mixture of mindset dealing with content and being that can hopefully resolve. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You smiled when I yeah, said I that. Yeah, I like that because I like, I like groups of threes and, and you, you divided them up nicely. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and, and I, I point this out also for the purposes of coaches or people that are doing self, uh, personal development is like, I think people who over-index on any one of those are going to be missing out. For sure. So there's like the people who swear by just breath work. And it's like, I'm going to resolve all of my issues through breath work or like rewiring my nervous system in some way. And I'm very skeptical of that. I'm very skeptical of the straw rationalist approach of just dealing with content. And I'm very skeptical of just mindsets as well. I, I, I 100% agree. Okay. And this is very reassuring to hear. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's just, yeah, this is my, my personal take, but it's been like probably reified by hitting a bunch of barriers and trying to help people and being like, oh, why don't we try less of a content approach and more like, have you tried to just relate to this slightly differently? And then they're like, oh yeah, it opens up and now I get more content by just relating to it differently and so forth. Yeah, I mean, that, that's why I like combining Alexander Technique with Vue or with the Connection course because that pulls out content that you can then work with in an Alexander way. So I have a bit of a bias against the word mindset. So when you say mindset, you sound very like optimistic towards the word mindset. So I would love for you to try to change my like the way my corrosive viewpoint on mindset, because I think I just have this like cynical version of it, which is like uh, reality negating. It's like privileging outcomes or the way you want to be over what is in the worst way, in, in like oh. Yo, more cynical way. Who ways. uses mindset? Who hurt you? <laughs> who uses mindset <laughs> in this way? Was it NLP? I bet uh, it was I NLP. Think like, <laughs> I think like stuff I see out there, like life coach stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. typical industry things yeah, yeah. is like, hold hold this worldview really hard right and you will achieve okay. things uh, i have a very neutral opinion of the word mindset and so please. here please yeah i mean uh here it's more that this is this is the more true mindset i don't know different different things can be true or false and i think view is just actually more in touch with reality than other i don't know the the conventional one okay so would it help if I said a state of mind? Yeah. Well, state of mind seem, feels very emergent and happenstance to me, but it's sort of like intentional state of mind. I think if you are doing view or if you're doing any mindset that I or state of mind that I would say is good, then then there's something going wrong. If you're doing it in a way that's good, it's wrong? No, it's like, uh, so doing in, in the capital D oh. sort of non-woo. If you're trying, if you, if, if you are reifying it, 
basically, okay, Alexander Technique, The Art of Accomplishment and some kind of Buddhist meditation, non-dual something or whatever, don't really know what it is. All three of these, they are all purely about, purely, they are all about not fixing anything, not nailing down any particular thought, feeling, way of being, whatever. They are all about how to freely move across any, like, whatever reality is. Mm. And that's why they all get to the same place okay. eventually. That's why people who do a lot of art of accomplishment stuff, their their posture improves, even though that's usually an Alexander Technique thing. Because right. if you're less like shriveled away from the world and and hunching and and whatever, because you're like trying to deal with attacks from people, mm. then you're naturally going to have bigger body language. But if you do having bigger body language, then then you're introducing tensions again because now you don't have the availability to go into a small place. Right. 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 Okay. All right. So I've updated a bit on the word mindset. I appreciate that. I think I'm just going to have to distinguish between how other people use it and what some people say and what other people say when they, when they are using that word. Okay. So you have stumbled upon Alexander Technique. And I was saying that it seemed like you were looking to mostly troubleshoot content in your mind, at least that's what, from my viewpoint as your coach at that time, which was my main focus also as a coach. And I'm, it's really interesting because that was like four years ago, five, four, three, four years ago. So I'm like, holy shit, I must have evolved quite a bit since yeah. then, right? And, and my impression was, it was sort of like, the way I get relief here is by thinking through these emotional issues and troubleshooting it and then like getting some kind of release or update uh, at the time. And I, I think that I was working with you pre Alexander technique. Yeah. Yeah. Was that, is that roughly accurate? So, so what, what was the original question? Is that like how you were approaching personal development or like getting that, like, like trying to move more towards the existence you wanted prior to this way of just that is definitely what I was doing Not with doing. you, um, but I think I was also, because I think at that time I had also read uh, Complex PTSD by Pete Walker, and so I was uh -huh. also doing some um, focusing and internal processing that was more about finding the threads and then just feeling through those. Okay. So I think that was more mode that you saw me in rather than the only thing that I was doing or my main, even my main focus. Got it, got it. Cool. Okay. So then you're you're kind of doing those things. I assume that the complex PTSD and the exercises and you were doing IFS stuff as well opened you up to the idea that a body-based or a unity with the mind, gut, and body-based theory could be quite so good. I, I had no idea what that meant until after I already started learning the Alexander oh, okay, technique. Okay. What made you encounter this thing and be like, oh, that could be good for me? Or did you just like, I, try it out? I saw it, uh, multiple people said, you should go read My Michael Ashcroft's tweets. You, you should go and read this thing about Alexander Technique. I had like a skim. I was like, meh. And, and so multiple people said that until one tweet said, Luli, stop what you're doing. Go and read this. This is a public tweet, not a this, DM? This is a public tweet. <laughs> this is a reply to my tweet about, because I, I said this, uh, my tweet was that Marie Kondo's Spark Joy and Derek Sivers' Hell Yeah or No and David Deutsch's fun criterion are all the same thing. And then 
the artist formerly known as Rival Voices, now known as now now known as Vasco, mm-hmm. replied and said, "Yeah, stop what you're doing and go go and read this. Trust me, you'll thank me later." And I was like, "Well, that's a pitch. I mean, like I, I, that's that seems I, I, fine. I will do it." And so I just start reading it, and it's quite interesting. And so so it starts out talking about how awareness has a size and a shape. So uh, attention is like, I'm paying attention to you, but there's also what I'm aware of. I'm aware of these laptops. I'm aware of the lights and the room and, and the space around me. And and so there's, there's an awareness field. And then it turns out that you can, uh, usually this is a conscious, uh, a subconsciously controlled sort of field, but you can take conscious control over your awareness. So you can expand your awareness. You can be like, oh, I wasn't before paying attention to those curtains over there. And now, now they are in my awareness. And, and then when you do this thing of not diminishing your awareness or of, of expanding your awareness, a ton of like effects start happening. Uh, and, and you, and things feel easier. It's sort of like when you are taking yourself into a, a small space, when you're not paying attention to anything, you know, beyond this table, then it's it's physically harder to move into that space because you're cutting it out of your awareness. And so, mm. so awareness and, and the way I think about it now is that awareness is the the direction uh, from which you can get information. So which information are you allowing to reach you? And anyway, so I was reading this thing and I was like, oh, that's, you know, that's quite interesting. Ah, I do notice that when I'm just aware of my phone screen, then, uh, and the world is collapsing around me, uh, then, then I'm kind of more hunched over. Whereas if I'm holding my phone and I'm also aware of the space behind me and the, the space above me, then I sort of naturally, uh, expand to fill out that space, like physically. And I thought, oh, that, that's neat. Uh, and then, and then there was, so that was one of the exercises and, um, just to notice the space between you and the phone screen and the space around the phone screen. And then there was the other exercise, uh, which was the non-doing floor exercise where you just notice what are all of your doings? Like, like, and it it described the difference between non-doing and doing and so on. And, and I tried this and it just gave me this this clarity, this sort of presence, this sort of being here in like, like suddenly I was here Hmm. and and suddenly everything felt vivid and suddenly textures became like clearer and things, things felt almost like further away, but easier to touch at the same time. Hmm. Uh, And, and I, and I, and I felt powerful. Like there, there was a kind of a sense that, wow, I'm, I'm in this room and it's not just like, oh, there's this room and there's all of this stuff around. It's like, ah, yes, I can go and I can affect this. Mm. And it was just an amazing sort of subjective experience. But then I found that it, it it meant that like, if I'm not doing anything and I'm watching my body do stuff, uh, then I don't have to overthink. Mm. So for example, with WhatsApp voice uh, memos, before, I would plan what I'm going to say in my head, start recording, trip up over my words, delete that recording, try to remember what I was going to say, record the thing. Uh, I, I don't say it perfectly again. So, and then, I, you know, this happens six times and I'm, I'm getting sort of frustrated and less natural with it. And, and I'd be kind of nervous about making this recording and everything. And so this time, uh, I just applied non-doing to it. So I let my thumb decide when I would hit record and then I would just watch myself speak. And then I was speaking, you know, perfectly without hesitation. And and so there's this, just this switch that you can make where you just watch yourself act in the world instead of doing acting. 
Hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's a million things I could say to to what you mentioned. I'm like weirdly inclined to want to point out a thing, which is that I I get the sense that sport is quite good for training people naturally in this sort of thing. I, I just get the sense that the things that are revelatory later in life are things I pay attention later in one's life are things I pay attention to. And it's not to say that some everyone who does sport will be able to do this or yeah, it comes actually, easily. Yeah, as, as, um, lots of people who do sport don't get this. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, and actually a lot of people go to Alexander Technique to improve their, their sport game because they are so, you know, try and, um, emulating a tennis person who's like very, you know, closed down. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then... Uh, I think I know that the thing I'm gesturing at for people in sport might be they um, might have more exposure to situations where you are just in a moment where you need to do and turn off your thinking mind. Like they may have had more of those collectively if they've done sport over several years of their life than a person who's using explicit thought all the time and never really doing that. And so they might have like mental or bodily reference yeah. or more of those. So it's like they may lose that. This is really cool. This is this explains why why normies are wise in this way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and and it isn't just going into an autopilot thing because they have to deal with, you know, the ball going in a different direction from what they expect and so on. Right. Huh. Right. And I think that's stored in the, I don't know, gut body or something. Yeah. And that's also why it's hard for them to articulate that because they haven't refined the tools of being able to articulate that. Yeah. They're just like, I don't know. I, I like turn off my thoughts and I just do it. And it's, I'm like, it's like, just do that. Like that kind of coach or that kind of person. Yeah. At least that's my... Have you had experience with getting people out of that state of mind? Like as in of walking them through how to turn off their thinky bit of their brain? Well, I mean, yeah, but I don't think I did it as well as I could have if I had had training in Alexander Technique or something. I think I gave them a bunch of what sort of native for me models or procedures or something that could help them for, with that. Inner game of tennis was also like pretty good. That for is this basically sort of Alexander technique. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, and I, so I pulled a bit from that right. too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and yeah. Some of that is, well, maybe this is not from the book. Maybe this is my own little add-on. I kind of forgot at this point. But there's like appropriate periods to be explicitly thinking about stuff and not. And like you can have like an evaluation period afterwards or something like that and then go try it. And then there's just like different periods when doing this makes sense. So like for the autopilot athlete or something, they never really explicitly or strategically look at what they're doing. And like that's limited, obviously. And then for the people that are always in their head and they have critics, that's an issue, right? And so one of the things we do is like, yeah, repetitions plus basically reflective awareness and reflect it, like reflecting explicitly on it after the fact and then trying to go back. But 
immediately when you're like back in doing the rep- repetition, trying to let go of all explicit thought and do the thing and then kind of like keep, keep going there. I think some people had some pretty good results with that. I haven't like systematically studied how that went, but something like that. The other day I wrote this tweet that said that the reason that rationalists don't get woo is that they don't do the goddamn exercises because all woo really is is a series of exercises that you do with your body. And then Scott Alexander replied, asking, what is your evidence for this? I've tried, you know, around 10 different types of woo, you know, facilitated by uh, experts in some cases, and I can't tell the difference uh, between that and, or like the, the, the outcomes were sort of indistinguishable between that and zero. <laughs> and this is, and, and so, and so the reason I'm interested in, in this is, is that I think there is this thing that is some kind of like body processing or body intelligence or something. And these are slightly metaphorical words because it all probably happens in the brain, except like the gut does have a lot of neurons, but probably those are more to do with physical functioning, but maybe they're not. Maybe I live down here as well as up here. And I'm interested in, in what are the pointers for the type of people who find it difficult to see like what is this uh, stuff which you know, woo is kind of like a, a far end of, of some of it. This is really hard to bootstrap sort of grokking or embodied understanding of this stuff. So that has been a pretty critical weakness of my practice is like people who cannot attend to their own emotional state or their body or they're just like, yeah, completely dissociated in their minds and can't even interpret counterfactual differences or like imagine or simulate it. It's like a, ter- a particular kind of person that's like, I have no idea at all whether what I just did enhanced my experience whatsoever, even after having done it or something compared to not doing it. Yeah, that's like an inferential or conceptual bridge or technical bridge that I still haven't figured out how to cross. Like I think there's probably better that are people that are much better at the the foundations of that. Uh, so I've I've kind of been resigned to like r- not really taking on as many people who who are incapable of that, and greatly admire those who are like like live in that space and like can explain it to those people, can show them have robust results doing that and so on and so forth. But it's like particularly tricky for me personally. Yeah. I'm amazed at how much the Alexander technique has worked in those situations. So, Mm. you know, I've, I've taught my CIFAR class, which is called awareness and embodiment, which is basically using a lot of the Alexander technique um, ideas. And, and I've, I've taught that maybe eight plus times to rationalists. And, uh, and I'm amazed at how well it works. Even, even the people who are usually quite heady, mm. uh, can, can sort of, yeah, that there's something that, that it does for them. So I feel kind of optimistic. Have you had ones for which it, they just couldn't follow? Um, it, it's hard to say because most of the times I've taught it have been in bigger classes. And so I think my sample size for the, the smaller uh, groups where I can tell is a bit like my sample size is a bit too small for me to be able to comment, but I have, I was extremely surprised 
that it worked even for people who I thought would find it extremely difficult, like for people who are more um, on the autistic end. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's really good to know. Okay. That makes me really want to get me some, some AT. Well, tomorrow <laughs> or Wednesday, uh-huh. <laughs> we have workshops every Wednesday in London. Okay. Every Wednesday where? And what kind of workshops are these, Lily? <laughs> Um, so my, my teacher, Peter Nobes, um, at the South Bank Alexander Technique Center, it's in Southwark. So it's, it's near Blackfriars. Okay. And it's, a uh, um, Wednesday evening. So 6.30 and yeah, it's just a workshop open to all. Is there a website people can check out? Um, yeah, if, but if you Google, <laughs> if you Google <laughs> South Bank Alexander Technique Center, <laughs> That's uh, a great, it will come up. Great pointer. Okay. Google that people. Google that. Put it in the show notes. I'll put it. I'll put it in the show notes for sure. Well, this makes me feel like well, we're we're coming up, I guess, a bit on time. Um, but also a really organic way to ask you, like, what is the frontier for your Alexander Technique practice? Like, is there a place that you are now that you're working towards? Is there a hangup? Is there something that like Peter has identified? You know, you're like a green belt and you're trying to get to be a black belt of Alexander Technique. Like Just last week, I, I asked basically this question um, to Peter and he said that I'm good when I'm when I'm doing it. But the, the issue is we have this concept in, in um, the school called continuity. So are you living in this world uh, in, in the Alexander space all the time mm. or do you turn it on and then turn it off to go and do something? And then, and then you're back. Like basically how, how much are you present for how much of the time? And so, yeah. So right now the thing I'm working on is remembering to do it more often because so he, he will sign someone's teaching certificate when they can walk in with enough Alexander technique that they can put their hands on someone and then that produces a, an effect. Oh, and incidentally, Alexander Technique is usually taught in a hands-on way. Uh, mm. It can be taught uh, to some extent online, but there is a hands-on component. And, and, so, and so you need to basically have it on all the time. Like you change as a person. This is why you noticed that I was like more chill and calm and stuff. And part of that is that my level of Alexander technique or like my uh, default, my baseline amount of awareness or my baseline uh, non-reactivity going into patterns, going into autopilot is just different from how it was last time you met me. Yeah. And so if I, if I make that a bit more consistent, then at some point I will get a teaching certificate. Nice, nice. Yeah, this this also like I mentioned in my episode with Emily, we talked a bit about body work, but not much. I think we just basically said she's a specialist or practitioner or something. We've talked about the importance of of the body and all of this, but yeah, body work practitioners, people who who like touch people and cause effects. This is in my mind very fucking real. And I've had a fair number of experiences including verbal and nonverbal where i've i've introspected with someone placing their hands on me and introspected on a certain area and that being way better yeah. than just trying to think it through or something all kinds of weird stuff there. i find it so yeah i can tell you so many weird things that i've picked up from the alexander technique but i find it so wild that i was a floating brain and now i'm literally in training to be a body worker yeah 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 <laughs> yeah that's awesome that's awesome 
What's um? So Luli now meets floating brain Luli. Yeah. What's a thing that you would say that floating brain Luli would be like? Get the fuck out of here. Uh, like I don't. I don't. No. Like as in as in that that I wouldn't believe. Yeah. Sorry, that was a yeah, pretty yeah. colloquial yeah. American way to say that. <laughs> um. Even even the idea that that mental states c- can be be felt or be transferred physically, transferred is not quite the right word. Like mm, by osmosis, shaped. How do I, how do I even or... describe what 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 is actually happening? I just want to kind of show you. Sure, sure. Uh, I'm floating brain, Lily. So I don't I don't get it. What are you trying to tell me? How would I describe? Okay, what what would be actually useful for floating brain, Lily? I think the most useful thing is that. Yeah, your body has, I think I would just say that getting in touch with your body and your physical sensations and uh, will allow you to do more thinking, better intuitions, uh, understand your emotions more and and like basically give you access to a whole bunch of information that was completely blocked or maybe not completely, but largely blocked off before. And I could say a bunch of stuff that that she just like wouldn't wouldn't uh, like would be extremely skeptical about. Okay, unless... I'd be curious about that too. It doesn't have to be a an abstract reformulation, but like, what have you experienced or seen that she'd be like, what? There are states of uh, being physically where you you feel comfortable, alive, light. Uh, you know, your nervous system is regulated and everything. And it turns out that if someone puts their hands on you and then puts themselves into this comfortable light, you know, well-regulated, whatever nervous system, you will feel that in your own body and your, your own system will take on some of that unless you're kind of like blocking it out or like trying to resist the effect or something. And awesome. If you, uh, as the person receiving this, also puts your hands on someone else, it can go through the chain of people. And so you can see one person and, and it, it, not even visually, like no visuals, just just like one person in front of the other in front of the other. The person at the, at the, at the front end of the chain can do this, like going from very kind of collapsed and scrunched and whatever to this expanded state. And then it can it will transfer through the people. This is a robust theoretical explanation for why we do the cha-cha <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry i was holding that one yeah that's yeah. cool though i want to i want to experience that and you can you can turn up the level of communication like with your hands like so when i have hands on there's a way that i can either make my hands go totally dead and and you you don't even know it's not like they change pressure or anything. It just feels like they become dead or you can turn it up and then you can increase the, and then it's weird. What it feels like subjectively to me is kind of tingly. Oh, also. Are you trying to avoid the word energy? Yes. Why? Uh, Because woo, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I am a rationalist T. Got it. And also, I don't know when, when you say energy, then it makes things vaguer, but, but also people who do Tai Chi. So uh, do you know Tashin? Mm -hmm. Do I know who? Uh, Tashin Fogelman. Mm-mm. Okay, he's another. He's in the kind of the rationalist uh, Jason. Anyway, um, I was hanging out with him, and he was doing a Tai Chi uh, tree pose, and he had just been doing tree pose for you know five minutes. 
And he said, try your Alexander, like feel my back and, and try like, you know, do an Alexander thing. And I, I touched his back and it was like alive and tingling. And I was like, what's going on? He's like, yeah, that's chi. You know, that's 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 the energy Whoa. like circulating. And also in, in one of our Alexander uh, technique uh, classes, one of the, I think it was a visiting teacher, um, had us like just just for fun do this Tai Chi thing where where we would pull up the we would imagine we were pulling up the energy from the ground and we would be gathering it and then we'd gather it and we'd, we'd kind of put our attention in our hands and then we'd put hands on and then it was a stronger effect than like notably stronger effect than when we just like put hands on like normal that's crazy so I think and I don't fully know what it is my guess is something about having your attention in your hands in a particular mm. way. Like maybe there's something to do with like blood or heat or like, I don't know what it is. Maybe electricity, who knows? Like maybe something to do with vibration. I do not know right. how it works, right. but it does work. Yeah. Uh, very clearly does work. That's awesome. And and it's fa fairly reliable, like to be able to teach it. Like some people definitely find it harder in the beginning. Like if they're quite dissociated or if they're quite heady, um, it takes them time to learn how to sense into it. But we have people who were like that and then have graduated or, uh, you know, come very far and now can like absolutely feel all of that. So interesting. Yeah. Energy is a word that I've come to embrace after a lot of struggling with it because of the, the circles we run in or something. Mm -hmm. Energy economy is a really huge piece of my my coaching that I what does talk it to people about. Uh, essentially, it's examining from like a bird's eye view or you could call it like a um, mission control, how you are allocating energy that you have in your life. And that can be like levels of effort of various kinds or yeah, literally how you're investing doing a bunch of things, how you're converting it, how you're trying to get more, how you deal with having less, how you deal with having an excess. Do you think that that is the same type of energy as the Alexander Technique Tai Chi type or are they different? Uh, I think that the type you're talking about is basically physical manifestations of a better relationship to the amount of energy that we all have or something. Hmm. And so you're like a better conduit would be my interpretation. And people who are like really have poorly functioning energy economies basically are not in touch at all with how much they could have. They're misspending and misusing what they do have. And the ways that they think they can get more uh, or convert more or something is like mistaken or like mostly mistaken. And so they're operating at a much or the amount of energy that they that it takes them to do basic things, like you're saying, they're efforting to do everything, is costing them energy points or something in a way that it, it need not. And so it's just like ultra, ultra draining. And these are this is why people, this is why like I think for some group of people, even things that they purportedly enjoy are draining and difficult for them. Or even just like lounging on the couch in some sense is like, like makes them feel bad, even though there's like a physical recovery element or something. My current sense is that the energy in, uh, is it the same or different? Because 
maybe it's something like how much uh, do you have this mind body unity? Like you are all one thing. Like how much are you? Is all part of your system, all parts of your system, going towards one thing versus spending like friction fighting yeah. itself internally? And then the thing about when you can feel the energy in someone's hand, maybe that's something like all of your consciousness is aligned with uh, very subtle motions with your hand. I think there's like less tributaries, like energy tributaries. There's like a main channel mm. and you're like unified and so there's less division. So maybe it's just alignment. Maybe energy is secretly alignment. It could like, yeah, I'm wondering whether alignment is the quote-unquote physical structure and then the energy is what flows through it. I don't know. But it, like, I guess scraping together some of these things we're talking about, I would say when you feel that thing, if it's the case that you think those instructors or you or something are just generally more unified as people than the average person on the street, and that's why you're able to produce that effect, I would imagine it's because you're like a less blocked conduit for whatever's flowing. I suspect that the flow thing and thinking of it as a substance is kind of metaphorical or like like there isn't actually a substance that's flowing or whatever but more uh it's an emergent property and so and so if you are all aligned with something then you will notice you know different movement in your hand or different you know heat or something and if you are aligned with your lounging then you will get way more from your lounging because there won't be parts of you that are saying oh i should be i shouldn't be so lazy and so maybe the energy thing is just what what manifests emergently when you are fully into the thing. I would buy that, but I also think there's a reservoir that builds up. Like I think when you are manifesting more in the way that you're talking about, when you end up encountering a thing that is troubling or difficult or like inconvenient or whatever, and it maybe snaps you out of that contiguousness you're saying, or maybe it's not supposed to ideally, but let's say it does. You have way more energetic bandwidth to deal with that in a creative, compassionate, good way. Like, I don't think it's just a product of the moment and then it dissipates, I guess. Like, I think you you build a reservoir of like... Okay, but I think that reservoir is... So the way that I'm thinking about it is that imagine you've got like a ton of different... I want to draw this like like little arrows, like you know, you are com comprised of a bunch of little arrows and a lot of them are in different directions. And that's sort of where your attention is or, or where your will is or your intentions are. Okay. And they can be pointing in different directions. And if you are a very like internally conflicted person, then they might be pointing in opposite directions. And if you are mostly on board with something, then most of them will be pointing in that direction. But then some of them will be kind of off somewhere else. Maybe you're like mildly distracted or maybe you are available to be distracted if, if the certain thing comes into your sensory field. And then so what you're talking about, so with the with the reservoir thing, it's something like if you've got it such that all of your little arrows are all pointing in the same direction, then you've got really strong intention and you're very much doing that thing. And even a big distraction won't bother you because you have all of these arrows and they're all pointing in that direction. It's this very strong system. Whereas if you've got only some of them are, and then some of them are, then, then a distraction can come and kind of pull you away or move you around. Yeah about right. 
And so I still think the energy as of this podcast right now, like I've just made this up. I, I, I suspect it's a, it's an emergent property of basically what those arrows of attention intention are. So how is that different than what I said? So you're saying there's a, something like a critical mass of attention. It's, it's not a substance that flows through. It's, oh. it's like a, it's a, it's a direction of each little point of um, awareness or something. And the emergent property is the experience of the effects of the awareness. Yeah. Yeah, like the emergent property is, oh, you know, Tashin's back feels tingly or my hand feels tingly or I have lots of energy or I'm lying on the couch resting ah. and yet I don't have energy. This is interesting because it's mashing together. Like I hadn't thought of the energy economy piece in relation to the Tai Chi energy or the bodywork energy or something. I mean, it could be that the energy and economy thing is is different, but this seems to be a unifying theory. <laughs> interesting, interesting. In the show notes, I'll be like, also stumbled upon unifying theory of energy? <laughs> question mark. Nice. Well, look, it was a pleasure chatting. We're we're way over time. Luli has been incredibly generous with her time, so thank you. Thank you. We smashed it. I think yeah, it was, it was fun. Just fun. <laughs> so it was super fun. Super yeah. fun. Pretty long, but like I love it and I want it to be long. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks.